0: my fellow sojourners and exiles you can have a seat and turn with me in your Bibles to 1st Peter chapter 1 so good to be able to sing together and uh, be with each other together um, in the same room Um, again 1st Peter chapter 1 starting with verse 3 if you don't have a Bible. We've printed the text for you. You may be unfamiliar with the Bible. Uh, so we've printed the text for you on page eight or, of your worship guide. We're going to read verses three through nine. This is God's Word. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Would you join with me and ask God's blessing on his word preached? Let's pray. Lord, as we come to your word as sojourners and exiles, we need to be strengthened for the journey. We need to see Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. We need you to awaken our sleepy Hearts again to receive your word, maybe some for the first time today, being given ears to hear Jesus calling out to them. And so, Lord, we pray by your Spirit and His power, preach your word to us today. In your name, our Savior, we pray. Amen. Well, joy is the birthright of those who are in Christ, right? It is it is it is a right that is ours in jesus christ but for many of us i think that joy is like um like a travel blog that we read or an instagram picture that we see of someone having a great vacation on bali it's like we see it from a distance and we think that's that looks good i'd like to do that one day but i think it's so far out of reach that all i can do is marvel at somebody else's experience and yet Peter describes the experience of the people in these churches in Asia Minor that he's writing to as joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. That's that's what they're experiencing. And we know what their present experience was. They were undergoing various trials, as he says in this passage, because they were followers of Jesus. They were increasingly seeing pressure from the broader culture. They were exiles. They were not home. They were sojourners. They were traveling through this world. Um, The world was pressuring them to conform their ways of thinking based on some things that Peter wrote. They were probably a marginalized people Um, even before they came to faith in Christ. They were those who were outside of the realms of Power and experience, and so they lacked all of the things that we typically tend to associate happiness with. Power, influence, and wealth. And see, this is the way we typically think about those three things. Those three things are the keys that unlock the experience of joy, because they are the things that open the pathway to freedom. And so our thinking goes, if we have freedom, then we have joy. Because joy is the ability to do what I want to do when I want to do it. And so freedom, those three things, power, wealth, and influence, unlock the freedom that allows us to experience joy. The wealthy have that freedom. They're not constrained by a budget, so they can do what they want to do. The powerful have freedom because they have access to quarters of power that allow them to do what they want and pull the levers of power that give them the influence they need to access the things that will bring them joy. But let me suggest that that's upside down. The joy is, being, is found in being freed from yourself instead of indulging yourself. Ask someone with wealth if they're free, and they'll tell you that their joy ebbs and flows based on the stock market and the economy. They're not free. They are a slave their bank account because their joy is absent because they have no security. And that's the key to joy. Security. Or to use the word that Peter uses frequently in this passage, hope. Hope and joy have a codependent relationship. They exist off of each other. You can't have joy without hope. If Joy is dependent on hope, then hope is dependent on security. Hope is not wishful thinking. Hope is always grounded in something secure and stable. And therefore, joy that is inexpressible, I don't have words to describe the experience of joy that I have, and full of glory, that it's stable and solid, can only be experienced in the exalted Jesus. This is what the gospel tells us. In Christ, I'm not tethered to my past. My past does not have to define me anymore. And I have a future that is not tethered to my efforts. It's not based on me. My joy is in the exalted Jesus because the exalted Jesus promises us I have a better story for you to live by that you don't have to write and you don't have to finish. Here's the three things that Peter's going to tell us to give us the experience of joy in Christ that is inexpressible and full of glory. Three things. He's going to ground that joy in a new beginning. If you're taking notes, a new beginning. He's going to ground that joy in a proper horizon. And then thirdly, he's going to ground that joy in a refined faith. A new beginning, a proper horizon, and a refined faith. So, a new beginning. Peter starts by reminding these Christians that their existence in Christ is not a result of their effort. So he starts verse 3 this way. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's a eulogy. That's the literal Greek blessed here. He's eulogizing the father. You think at a funeral, what a eulogy is, is that we remember all of the good things that someone did in their lives. We praise their efforts, and that's what Peter's doing. He's praising God for what he's done. Blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. He's eulogizing God because the work of making a Christian is completely the work of God, and according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Now, sort of. In the last 50 years use that language to describe a real Christian. We've said a real Christian is a born-again Christian to separate ourselves from nominal Christianity or cultural Christianity. We've called a real follower of Jesus a born-again Christian but that's like calling water wet, right? That is what a Christian is according to Peter here in 1st Peter 1. A Christian is someone who is that God has caused to be born again but the language that peter chooses for born again is really poignant here because what's translated as born again is really a strange word that maybe is better translated re-the-getting now we don't use begetting that much anymore begetting is old language but it's helpful language because what peter describes is god sowing the seed of new life into a person that's what begetting begetting is the work of the father in the work in the in the act of conception right a father begets by planting his seed and the woman receives and nurtures that seed so when you read the genealogies in the old testament we hear something like tara beget abram from himself he planted a seed and generated a child that's helpful image because it highlights our passivity when we come to faith in Jesus Christ. No more do you contribute to your first birth than you contribute to your second birth, your rebirth. The Father has caused us to be born again. But it also highlights what happens when someone becomes a follower of Jesus. It is the beginning of something brand new. Blessed be the God and Father who, because of his great mercy... Rebegetted me. He planted a new seed of life in me. Sin left me spiritually dead with ears that were deaf to the voice of God in rebellion against the God who made me and ordered my life, who gave me breath and food. And because of my spiritual deadness in that state, in my rebellion against God, in His great mercy, He has planted a new seed in me and caused me to be born again. I have come up from the grave of sin and what is now planted in me is the resurrection life of Jesus. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Because you see what happened when Jesus was raised from the dead wasn't just a man coming back from the grave. That had happened a number of times. This was a sin-cursed man who had undergone the wrath of God being raised out of the grave to usher in a new creation. And the cross defeats sin and the resurrection of Jesus brings new life. And this is what God is saying. I've taken the seed of the resurrection life of Jesus. And I have planted it in you. You are dead because of sin. But you are now alive because of the resurrection of Jesus has been planted in your hearts. That means that no one is born a Christian No one's born into a Christian family and thus can assume they're a follower of Jesus. Even those who are born into a family that are followers of Jesus need to have a new seed planted in them from the resurrection of Jesus. It also means this is a work of the Holy Spirit, which means it is a work that is mysterious. It is hidden from our eyes. Never knowing where the Spirit might be blowing through the world, Jesus says. You can't see the wind, but you know its effects. So it is where the Spirit, where He is moving to plant the seed of resurrection life in those who are spiritually dead because of sin. Don't know where He is moving through our city in the lives of your children or spouse, in the lives of those who are most broken around us. This is one of the reasons that we say that no one is so broken that they can't have Jesus because Jesus only works in the lives of those who are spiritually dead to raise them to new life by His Spirit. That is good news that is full of hope. And what the Father has done is He has brought Jesus into you. As a result, the gospel grounds us in a living hope. Because it's grounded in the living and reigning Jesus. The second hope that the gospel brings is a proper horizon. Because here's our tenet. Joy is based on hope and hope is based on security. That's our premise. And so what we need not only is to be brought, uh, born again into a living hope, but we need to know that in Christ, the future is better than the present. And these days, the present is pretty disorienting. It's easy to get discouraged as we're trying to navigate today's world. There are so many complex issues right now. How do I think about race? How do I navigate the complexities of that how am i to understand what is actually going on with the pandemic things like feels like things are changing the political environment so charged that i can't even figure out which words i'm supposed to use so that i don't get canceled out there's no freedom to even struggle through these things it is disorienting because there are so many things coming at us at once, and all of it is incredibly emotionally loaded. And when security fades, hope fades, and when hope fades, joy fades. And so here's what we need. Here's what the gospel gives us. A proper horizon. See, it's easy for pilots to lose their bearings when there's a lot going on, right? There's weather and wind and you're up in the air you can't sure where you're going and before they know it they can fly straight into the ground because they get so disoriented this is what they believe happened with kobe bryant the pilot lost his bearings and so a pilot is told when you lose your bearing find the horizon that's the fixed point you know where it is then orient everything to that fixed horizon dancers do this as they Dance. As they're spinning around, they can get easily disoriented. So they find a fixed point and focus on it every time they come around. So that in their speed, they don't get disoriented. And this is what Peter is doing for us. And he's saying this. Your fixed point is this. Because Jesus has come into you. Then you are born again through the resurrection. You also have come into Jesus. Not only has He come into you, but you've come into Him. You and Him are one, and you have a future hope, too, that is guaranteed by the exalted and reigning Jesus and is not based on your efforts. The Father has caused us to be born again to a living hope, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. There are two reasons that word inheritance is important. One, it highlights that this an inheritance is something that somebody else earns and gives to you. You don't contribute to your inheritance, somebody else does all the effort. It's just gifted to you. You enjoy the benefits of somebody else's labor, right? And so, just as Jesus' resurrection is the seed of new lives, Jesus' efforts are the are the um, security of our inheritance. But Peter is also doing something really important here. And we've said this before and we'll say this repeatedly. When he digs into his bag of concepts, he is always digging into the Old Testament to pull out themes. And he's saying to this people, This is your story. This is the story of redemption. That God has been carrying out in the world ever since Adam and Eve sinned. God is doing a work of renewal. So for ancient Israel, the inheritance was language. That was sort of code language for the promised land. That's why Adam read from Deuteronomy chapter 12. To describe what they would inherit as they were coming out of the inheritance. Exodus and the promised land for Israel was less about place and more about presence or to say it another way it was less about the actual piece of land in Israel and more about what God was doing with that land it was the place where he would dwell with his people and as a result of his presence they would flourish be land flowing with milk and honey where there's no more wars and there's security there because God would be their defender. It would play a place of abundance food where they would be safe from their enemies and all threats would be eliminated. All because the king was in the presence of his people. In other words, their inheritance was with God in his presence where they would no longer experience the effects of sin and a broken world. The inheritance of Israel was a foreshadow of of the new heavens and new earth where God would reign and everything would be put to right and there would be no sickness and sorrow and pain and death and confusion and political upheaval and races warring against each other. And here's what Peter's saying. Because of Jesus' obedience, he has entered into glory He's seated at the right hand of God. He's reigning over all of creation. And he will one day return to bring us into the Father's house where there are many rooms. And that inheritance is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. It is the new creation, and it won't fade away and perish like everything that we buy in this world that we try to find our security and hope in. It's undefiled because it is pure and unstained by sin and brokenness, and it's not like the glory of youth that quickly fades away. It is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading and is being kept in heaven. For you. you see, here's how it produces joy. It untethers joy from what you are watching in the news and where you think this world is going. Because Jesus promised a pattern. And the pattern that he promised is this. Degradation and then glory. Matthew 24, verse 6. He tells his disciples, you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place. But the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All of these are but the beginnings of the birth pains. And then lawlessness will increase, and the love of many will go cold. There's going to be a lot of upheaval. This world is not a safe place. Don't think that times of peace will be permanent. They will be fleeting. But the story that you are part of tells us that we should not be surprised by these things and that these things are not ultimate. The ultimate answer is not in systems or governments, but in a person who will return and bring our inheritance that is being kept by him. Jesus is the king of glory who has earned an inheritance and shares it generously with his people. And he guards it with all of his strength. But it's not just the inheritance that is being kept. We are being kept for the inheritance. Verse 5. Who by God's power, are being guarded through faith for salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. That word guarded is its military term for a century. Centuries are put outside of a city to keep the invaders from coming in and threatening the security of those who are on the inside. And as we've seen from Zechariah, God promises to be a wall of fire around His people. And in the midst of of a world that is degrading and wars and rumors of wars and great political unrest. It is Jesus who is standing century around his people making sure that whatever we face, it will never outdo us. But how are we being guarded? Who we are being guarded by is Jesus, but how are we being guarded? Peter's answer is through faith. Because faith is like a conduit that connects us to Jesus. Maybe the easiest way to think about faith is that faith is just simply entrusting. It's not just trust, it is entrusting. Finding somebody worthy enough, trustworthy enough to entrust ourselves to his care. This is why salvation is by faith, not by works. Because faith is like a muscle that just reaches out and connects to Jesus. I'm with open hands even. I'm, I'm yours and need you to take care of me. I can't figure out this life. I can't govern myself. I can't be a self-made man anymore. I can't make sure. There's no joy in writing my own story, so I'm entrusting myself to your care. But if we're going to entrust ourselves to the care of Jesus, we've got to quit entrusting ourselves to our own care. Because if we're guarded through faith that faith needs tending because all of us we're just weak and so many times we have this conversation oh i feel like my faith is so weak as if we're an outlier all of us are just faith is weak it's okay to have weak faith just as long as the object of your faith is great and glorious and exalted and full of mercy but faith is like a muscle. It's like the muscle of our hearts that just holds on to Jesus. And it needs strengthening. It needs refining. Because like a muscle, it can atrophy or it can be strengthened. But God, out of His great mercy, is in- committed to increasing our joy, which means He is committed to To increasing your faith. Which means he is going to increase your trials. Verse 6. In this you rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. So that the tested genuineness of your faith. More precious than gold that perishes. Though it is tested by fire may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Here's his point. Those trials are various, meaning you can't name them all. We're all going through them. Sometimes we're going through them together as a culture. Sometimes, most of the time, we're going through them separately in our own lives. But they're also momentary, verse 6, though for a little while. And that vantage point doesn't downgrade the grief of our trials, that they are various, um, meaning personal, and for a little while, that doesn't downgrade the grief of our trials. See, a Christian isn't someone who's just trying to stoically go through the trials of life, but does so with grief. Grief is part of the experience of suffering, though for a little while. You've been grieved by various trials and this is part of the strengthening of faith is being able to voice those griefs to God acknowledge grief God I'm I'm wore out by this I don't know what's going on I'm disoriented by this I don't know how to make I'm about ready to give up I don't think I can make it through this anymore I've lost everything that I once held precious and my heart is so sad I don't know what to do. I'm grieving before you. In fact, I think that when we deny grief, we short circuit the point of our trials. Our trials are meant to strengthen and refine faith. And so if we're not bringing those griefs, those emotions to the throne of Jesus and say, I hate this. My soul is downcast and I'm spent. If we're not doing that before the throne of grace, then we're Losing out of some of the fruit of our trials. but In the hands of God, our trials always serve a redemptive purpose. They are necessary. In this you rejoice, though, for a little while. If necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. If necessary. That means that whatever trial you find yourself in, the Lord has decided this is necessary for you because I love you and I want to see your faith strengthened so this is necessary it's not coming at you out of the blue whatever you are going through is necessary so that your faith may increase and your joy grow Edmund Clowney writes this Clowney a great scholar A great pastor writes this, God sends trials to strengthen our trust in Him so that our faith will not fail. Our trials keep us trusting. They burn away our self-confidence and drive us to our Savior. The fires of affliction or persecution will not reduce our faith to ashes. Fire doesn't destroy gold, it only removes the combustible impurities. The genuineness of our faith shines from the fire to his praise. Because this is what we find. He's kept me. My faith and strength have grown thin and wore out. But the hand of Jesus has kept me. And held me fast. And what you end up with. Is faith. That has been refined by God. So that it can support joy. In the midst of a broken world. Because if joy is dependent on hope. And hope is dependent on security. Then joy that is inexpressible. And full of glory. Can only be experienced when it is faith in the exalted Jesus and not in ourselves. See, it's full of joy. It's full of glory. Sorry, it's joy that's full of glory because it's joy that's full of Jesus. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible, and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your salvation, the salvation of your souls. Let's pray. Lord, the earth is yours. The fullness of it is yours. Lord Jesus, you have made all things, all things exist for your glory, and you hold them all together. There is not a person in power that you have not put there. There is no turmoil in our world that you are not reigning over right now. You are the Lord of creation. There is not a single Adam that is rogue in this world, and all unrest is by your hand. And we are reminded even this week that we are but sojourners in this world. Your church is your body with one spirit under one king and covered by your blood alone. And so this is our cry. May we labor to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. Help us to appreciate our differences inside of your body. And help us to hold our preferences and our opinions secondary to the centrality of the gospel. And Lord, this is our cry in the midst of that. May the world see your new people and see how your gospel creates unity and diversity. At the same time, may your church grow in our ethnic and racial diversity so that the world may see That you, Lord Jesus, alone can put things back together rightly. We pray for marriages. For the pressure of these days creates constant pressure on marriages, often in subtle ways. Will you guard us from the evil one who would love to destroy our homes and create unrest. Give us the grace that we need to outdo one another in showing honor. Lord, govern... Leaders need your wisdom as they navigate civil tension in the midst of a pandemic. Please surround them with wise advisors and turn their hearts toward good and righteous paths. Lord, I pray that you'd calm our anxious hearts and lift our downcast spirits. Give us joy in the midst of this chaos and unrest. Give us joy that is inexpressible and full of glory. Holy Spirit, bring revival and begin with us. Deepen our conviction of sin so that you alone, O Lord, would be our sufficiency and your grace our delight. And where there is even vestiges of racism in any of our hearts, would you convict us of it? Blow through our county reviving your churches and bringing many to faith in your Son. Now as we come to your table, our King, we pray the prayer that you taught us as your disciples to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven.